This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. Has Manchester United's £47 million goalkeeper cost them Champions League progression this season? Another night to forget for Andre Onana with United's European chances chopped down even further after the game with Galatasaray. And are orange cards and sin bins the way forward in professional football? Or are we messing with something that simply has already been messed with far too much? We'll also look over some of the questions you've sent us on today's show, including if we think Villa can go top of the Premier League by Christmas. My name's Niall and this is the award-winning podcast Football Social Daily in the studio. Newly christened Pompey fan Joel Tudor. But it was too cold to make the trek into town for Marley Anderson, who's in the comfort and the warmth of his own home. How are you doing, boys? Uh, doing good. Nice and warm. Um, also, happy anniversary to, uh, to all involved. Am I missing something? Yeah, it's the uh, it's the two year anniversary of um, Joel Linton becoming a midfielder <laughs> because because uh, we got we got a man sent off against Norwich two years ago and Joel Linton became a midfielder. So <laughs> you got that marked in your that, diary. That was you? the that was the butterfly effect that leads to Joel Linton winning the twenty twenty six Ballon d'Or. So that is one of the most pointless facts I've ever heard. I'm in my tempted life. just to like call it a day. <laughs> two minutes of the podcast. I'm tempted. That's it. See you, see I thought I was going to say, yeah, it's the two-year anniversary of you know me me proposing to my wife or something, but fucking Joel Linton's no. clearly gone. Why would she listen to you two? <laughs> Why would she not? No chance. Well, she definitely doesn't listen to this podcast or some of the things you say. Oh, God. Margot <laughs> Robbie, right at the top of the list. <laughs> We've got an agreement. I can talk about Margot Robbie. Well, I'm glad you're laughing now, Joel, because you certainly weren't laughing last night, but Marley definitely was when Andre Onana threw the ball into his net twice <laughs> against Galatasaray. That's where we're going to start on today's podcast. Manchester United's Champions League future is hanging by a thread. They simply have to, simply, go and beat Bayern Munich at Old Trafford in their final Champions League group stage game and hope that the other match between Copenhagen and Galatasaray is a draw for them to progress. And the reason that is the case is because last night, away in Istanbul against Galatasaray, despite being 2-0 up in the game, it finished 3-3. The reason it finished 3-3, Joel, after what was... A pretty good Manchester United performance was because United's goalkeeper, Andre Onana, made two more mistakes. Life was so simple as a Portsmouth fan. (laughs) It's never too late, Joel. It's never too late. All my worries just went away when I was in that away end the other day. Um, And now it's all just come crashing back down to earth. But honestly, this game was just a rewind of that Copenhagen game a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Control of the game, 2-0 lead gift them a back a, a route back into the game through Onana's poor mistake on the free kick. And then again, we control the game, 3-1. And again, Onana does a mistake, lets them into the game, and it just collapses constantly. It's, it's been a recurring trend this season, but this game, I've, I've defended him so much this season, Onana, and I still think he does need time. But this game and this Champions League campaign, he's cost us. Nothing in that game has cost us more than his mistakes. We were in control, complete control. This is the goalkeeper who was the best goalkeeper in the competition last season, helped Inter Milan reach the final against Manchester City. I think he kept the most clean sheets in In the the competition last season. This season, United have gone to Copenhagen and scored three. They've gone to Bayern Munich and scored three. They've gone to Galatasaray last night and scored three. They've walked away with one point (laughs) from those three matches, away from home, because of the goalkeeper. 
it's insane, isn't it? We've conceded the most goals in a group stage out of any English team ever. That's an absolute embarrassment. And it should never have been the case because every single game in the Champions League, apart from the buying game, we've been winning it. And suddenly just complete capitulation. It must be a mental thing. Ten Hag actually mentioned it after the game. The game management of the players is pathetic. When we were 3-1 up, the hole in the middle of the pitch was almost like we were trying to go for a fourth and a fifth. And we should have just maintained the lead, stayed calm and then just progressed through the game. Instead, total naivety. I thought Ten Hag was really naive as well with his substitutions, bringing on Kobe Mainu for Amrabat and not even shoring up the midfield, but replacing the midfield. You're meant to add to your midfield if you want to control the game more, not take off an attacker, not take off a pretty established pro in the midfield for a young guy who's now got to control the game when Galatasaray were going attack after attack. But honestly, regardless of all the game management, regardless of the substitutions, if Onana wasn't flapping around like a pro club's keeper on FIFA, we would have won that game. And that's the bare, bare crux of the whole game. I'm just so angry because... This was a group that on paper we should have been cruising past and every single game they made hard work of it. Every single game. All three of us said that Galatasaray are a different prospect in the Champions League this time around than they have been in previous years. You only need to look at the players they had on display. I think there was five former Premier League players in the starting eleven, supplemented by Dries Mertens and Mauro Icardi, which is 224 Serie A goals between them. So it's a handy side. However, the way that they defended last night, they were there for the taking on their own turf in a hostile atmosphere in a game which Manchester United knew that they couldn't lose, otherwise they'd be out of the Champions League. They did have control and then they lost control. And we'll talk about Ten Hag and how much of a responsibility he has within that in a second. But just bringing it back to Onana... This is a goalkeeper who, Marley, as we say, cost a decent chunk of money and had a good season last season. And we've all come to the understanding that he plays in a way that Eric Ten Hag wants his sides to play. He knows the manager system. He played under him at Ajax. When someone plays in that way, trying to ping passes out from the back and construct from the back, you know they're going to make mistakes every now and again. They might play a wayward pass or get caught on the ball and play themselves into trouble. You kind of get that. It's the trade-off you get with that sort of goalkeeper in terms of the style of play. However, the mistakes that Onana is making, these are simple goalkeeping errors. The one where the ball bounces in front of him, it's straight at him and he somehow punches the ball into his own goal. The other one where he sets up a wall to cover one side of the goal, then steps behind it, the free kick comes close to him and he doesn't get anywhere near it. These are simple goalkeeper mistakes. These aren't mistakes that you can kind of hand off as, oh, it's just the way he plays. This is basic goalkeeping. And this is this is what's annoying me about the whole situation. This is why I'm quick to criticise him, but I'm right to criticise him because it's not a case of having one or the other with goalkeepers. You can't have, you know, it's not a case of, oh, well, he's good with his feet, but he's crap with his hands, so that's okay because he's going to, you know... <clears throat> For Onana to sort of be any good last night, he would have had to start four attacks that that lead to goals from him because he made two mistakes. I'd say he made three mistakes because even the third goal from Galatasaray goes in his near post and he should he should save that. A good goal, he saves that. But the two, I mean, the one where he goes behind the wall, you know, what is the point in having a wall if you're then going to go and stand behind it? Um, and the second one from Ziyech. It's, it's funny as well that Ziyech, played with Onana and Ten Hag at Ajax. And Ziyech just went, every time I get a free kick, I'm just going to make it bounce in front of him. 
and that's it. And it's gonna it's gonna catch him out. And you know that that third goal was was absolutely embarrassing. It was literally. I'm glad Joel said it because I had the exact same phrase in my head. It's a pro clubs goalkeeper. If anyone's ever played FIFA, and you have a you have somebody who's just messing around in goal, pressing random buttons and presses the wrong button at the wrong time, you know he just ends up collapsing on the floor and palming it behind him into his own net. It's just it's daft, and he's not giving anything to the team at all. And then he's you know acting. You know, acting like a, you know, just an absolute amateur, and it's, it's crazy that Man United fans are sometimes still defending him. But there's plenty just still saying, well, he's, you know, he's, he's good with his feet. It's like he's, he's not, he's not even that good with his feet. He's just confident enough to pass it five yards. He's not like Edison who can smash it sixty-five yards on a sixpence for a, for a counter attack to start. All he does is pass it slot short to Maguire and Lindelof or Martinez or whoever's in the team, and then. It's their build-up. It's not exactly Onana making a killer pass or anything. He hasn't done it once since he got to Man United. But I, I, I mean, I can't even count how many goals he's cost them. But it's it's getting on for eight or ten goals now, and he's the sole reason, in my opinion, that um, Man United are gonna probably go out of the Champions League because he's made mistakes against Galatasaray, mistakes against Copenhagen, um, and there's there's six points. They should have had six points, and you know had the last game against Bayern just being a kickabout in uh, in Manchester, but it's not. One of the things that I noticed yesterday, Joel, and I don't know whether you feel the same being a Manchester United fan, if I was a defender or a midfield player and my goalkeeper was making mistakes like that, I'd be hammering him. And maybe not on the pitch is the place to do it, but definitely in the dressing room, I'd be saying, listen, you are letting us down. You need to pull your socks up because this is not good enough for a club of this standard. At the same time, he's a new player in the squad and you don't want to shatter his confidence too much, particularly yeah. in a position like goalkeeper where mistakes, own. yeah, you're on your own, mistakes are crucial. But also I feel like no one's Mate, doing that. If, you, if you've if you got the ego though, the ego to have a go at Maguire after, on his debut, if you've got that type of ego and then you're going to make all these mistakes, you deserve criticism. I just didn't see anyone yesterday turning around and absolutely nailing him. I think it's like you say, when you're on the pitch, it's not the right time because it's a lonely place being a goalkeeper. And if you've got your own team against you as well, absolutely bollocking you, then it's just, it helps no one, doesn't it? You could see uh, he was just a lone figure at the end, took off his gloves. He was just so annoyed with himself because he's probably thinking, I should be saving these. He knows. It's not like he's oblivious to it. He's mm. not going into these games thinking, I've had a decent game there. He knows he's making errors. Yeah, yeah. Now this is on Eric Ten Hag to not make him complacent. He's brought in a great Turkish keeper who's not been proven yet. He's not even got a minute to his, his belt in the Man United shirt. Now is the time to say, if you're going to keep dropping points at this level, someone will take your place. It happens everywhere else outfield. If Casemiro has a bad game or if Hoyland has a bad game, he'll be on the bench. The goalkeeper's a place where you cannot afford to keep in a, a bad form keeper there because he will cost you points and he'll cost you campaigns. This is the sole reason why we are out of this. And not only just Onana, because he is a big reason for that loss, but I'm so worried about this United team's fragility in games when we go ahead. I cannot believe the amount of games. I can literally run off the games. The, the Not even just in terms of going ahead, but the capitulation, mm. the mentality of collapsing, the 7-0 against Liverpool, the 6 at City, the Arsenal game where we threw away a lead when Rashford scored and they went on the other end and scored. The Brentford game, the Brighton game. Literally every game that we've yeah. played, they capitulate. And particularly the issue in that? the Champions League as well, when you look at the goals 
that have been conceded. They've been conceded in clusters. So you conceded, I think, two goals in 10 or 11 minutes last night against Galatasaray. It was something similar in the game at Old Trafford. Two goals in a few minutes against Copenhagen. Two goals in a few minutes against Bayern Munich. When you concede one, you concede two. And as much as the players need to take some responsibility, I see a lot of people saying that, yes, Onana made mistakes last night, but Bruno Fernandes gave away two stupid fouls to give Ziyech the chance from the free kick. Now, people will look at that and say that's bad game management. How much of it is down to the players? How much of it is it down to Eric Ten Like Literally, like just Marley just said then, you cannot blame Bruno Fernandes for giving a foul. The first foul was given because McTominay didn't spot him in the box and then Bruno Fernandes sprinted 60 yards to go and get his man. Yeah. It happens, a foul happens. You expect your goalkeeper to make a routine save. Absolutely. He's not going into that yeah. tackle thinking, actually, I'm not going to make the tackle because my yeah. goalkeeper can't save for Toffee. But it still doesn't to do it. D- negate the fact that the team is conceding too many goals yeah. in clusters. And I think in terms of statistics, that's 33 goals conceded now this season so far, more than any United campaign since the 60s. It's embarrassing. And when you look at the riches we've got at the back, I mean, you've got Raphael Varane on the bench. What's he doing on the bench? Surely Ten Hag believes him enough that he can play a left centre-back. The way in which he was going on about Harry Maguire, who, let's give him his props, by the way, he's been absolutely solid in these last few games. I've not seen many people giving him his credit and he's proven a point, fair play to him. But when you've got a goalkeeper like that behind you, he's not who's almost giving the defenders an extra task. They're probably worried stiff about laying any shot on target because the keeper is 50-50 if he's going to save it. It's crazy because when we've gone from David De Gea, and I've seen a lot of revisionism of him, it's pathetic, by the way. Let's not forget, David De Gea was making these exact mistakes last season. He was done. Oh, no, he wasn't. No, he was. Marley, no, go he wasn't. Watch, no, no, not no, as bad the, as this. No, no, he was. Go and watch not the games last season. Chance. Brentford, where it went through his arms. Sevilla, where it went through his arms. He made bad errors last season. No last, way were they but, as the, bad. The, the bottom line is they're both making pathetic errors that were costing us games. Yeah, but if you make 15 errors over a 38-game season, that's different to then making 15 errors in 15 games, for example. I'm not saying that those are the actual figures. Yeah, but so you why, have you saying, fi- why have you spent yeah, 50 million? The reason why 50 million was spent is because no one was saying this about Onano after he got in the Champions League yeah. final and was incredible and Pep Guardiola was singing his praises after And you know game. what? I agree with you, Joel. Yeah, because but that's, that's one good game. It's not one good game, though. Onana, he kept the most clean sheets in the Champions League. They were going for the title. He's also kept the most He's kept the most clean, league, uh, clean sheets in the league, but he still made so many mistakes. Yeah, but he was top stats for Inter Stats are completely irrelevant, no, he was, Joel. He was, like, he was top for Nick Inter Post made five mistakes, um, five clean sheets, and so was Onana. He was top for Inter last season, though. That's the reason why they paid so much for him. It's not like we all were going into it thinking, oh, this guy's going to be an absolute calamity. Yeah, I but agree with that. I totally agree with that, Joel. But there's so much video of him making horrendous mistakes in his career, as well as good saves. There's a a, a terrible compilation for every really good compilation. His stock was up last season. Everyone knew it. That's why he... Inter had your pants down. sing someone's praises. Simple I agree 47 million's too much. I'm totally with you. But I see both sides of the argument here. I see the reason Manchester United bought Onana and I understand why they bought Onana. Because David Hay was poor with his feet last season. So he's almost negated that. But he's gone to the other extreme. I get the reason why they bought him. What does Onana do with his feet that's so good? Well, he's better than David De Gea. In terms of build-up. He passes, he passes 10 yards to Maguire and then more times than not, it doesn't really lead anywhere because Man United as a team aren't good enough to play out from the back over and over and over again. Well, that's kind of going back to the point I made at the start of the show, which was you can be a good passer at the ball. You can be someone who's got excellent distribution, whether you're kicking it out or throwing it out. If you can't stop the ball going in the net, you may as well give up. 
because that's the whole point of being a goalkeeper. You have to get your basics nailed first. That is why Edison and Allison are so good, because when the ball comes towards them, they keep it out of the goal. Onana is not doing that, and that is the basic fundamental of being a goalkeeper. Now, if he kicks one to the opposition, or he dilly-dallies on the ball and gets dispossessed, and the opposition score a goal from that, you go, okay, that's a terrible mistake. But I don't think that's as bad a mistake as the ball being kicked straight at him and him letting it through him twice. That's basic goalkeeping. And I think that that's where my issue comes with Onana. Mm. Because I think you get it as a football fan. If you're trying to play a certain way and your manager has a certain style of play, you go, right, lads, we're going to have to accept the fact that there's going to be occasions where Onana gets caught on the ball or he makes a mistake or he gives possession straight to the other team. What you can't accept as a football fan is mistakes like we saw last night. They're it, just not good enough. It's, it's very easy to say Onana wasn't the right type of keeper, but if anyone watched David De Gea last season, a massive, massive cause of our goals conceded last season was when De Gea was giving the ball out to the opposition straight away. Majority of the goals came from that. So obviously Ten Hag's looked at that issue and thought, what keeper in the world is the number one He's been revered as the number one by some of the best managers in the world as the top guy in that kind of bracket. So I completely understand why he's gone for him. But now we're seeing his weaknesses massively, massively exposed because the defence lets him be exposed as well. In that Inter Milan side, they conceded some of the least goals in the, in the campaign that season. They got to the Champions League final. One of the reasons was because of him. So there's no reason why I'm thinking, why did we sign him? Because at the time, it actually seemed like a pretty sure fit and a kind of jigsaw fit for our team. I understand. But That's why issue, I totally understand the issue we have now is it. that we've gone from two extremes. We've gone from David De Gea, who excellent in terms of point black range, um, shot stopping, poor at his feet. Now we've gone to the other extreme, which is Onana makes up for that weakness. But now we've got another problem, which is that he's not a great goalkeeper, as in what a goalkeeper needs to do in terms of just making the basics look pretty easy, which is why the likes of Edison and uh, Allison, yeah. they're great because they make the easy, they make the medium, med- medium kind of difficulty saves look very, very easy. Yeah. I think and that's where you start getting exposed as a goalkeeper. You say about Inter as well, like, you know, he's, he's he kept loads of clean sheets for Inter. We all know that in like the clean sheets are not a product of your goalkeeper. They're a product of your defense. No, but it's not just defense. that. I'm not just talking about the clean sheets though. But everybody I mean, keeps harking back to that. Oh, he's a, he, most clean sheets in the Champions League for Inter. Have you seen who Inter have got the back? Last year they had Skriniar, De Vrij and Bastoni. Like Spurs tried to buy Bastoni, I think, last summer and he, they wanted like 70 million for him because he's the best Italian prospect centre-back out there. Yeah, they so also play it, with a back three. That just goes to my point though. We're exposing his flaws more than Inter Milan because that defence was excellent. Maybe that's poor foresight from Ten Hagen looking into that and thinking my defence is going to expose his flaws. But I don't believe for one second it was a bad signing in the summer. Because he was his st- he was one of the best keepers in Europe last season. I think it's one of the worst signings in Premier League history. Yeah, it's easy to say now, of course. But I mean, in the summer, I don't think I see many. I know you actually mentioned that you didn't really like I did. I know. I but said I mean, this, this no, guy I mean, is not as good as people think. Even you saw Guardiola and he always curses our signings. He always gives high praise to signings that he knows are going to flop. But um, in, in all holistically I still am willing to give him time I'm not ready to write him off just yet because I think he knows his weaknesses at the moment well but he's been better in the Premier League recently yeah, it's 100%. just the Champions League game I don't he's know just what lost is. the plot it's strange but I really want to see um, the Turkish goalkeeper come in and give him a game well, he's going to be at the Caf- African Cup of Nations in January there's a good chance yeah that's going to be quite a nervy with, uh, song. 
Yeah, as it stands, it looks like he's going. But you know what? For Onana, that's going to be a very nervy period because if the Turkish goalkeeper comes in and is astute, super assured in net, he's not going to get back in the team because if we're very much more secure at the back, how can he get back in the team? All right, well, that's it for this section of Football Social Daily. We'll leave the Manchester United chat to one side, but once again... Andre Onana under the microscope for his performances in Europe. Next up on the podcast, though, we'll be discussing some of the reports that have come out over the last couple of days, discussing if the IFAB, who are football's rule makers, are about to bring in orange cards and sin bins into football. We'll try and get our heads around that next on FSD. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. Joel's vented his spleen about Manchester United. So we're going to give you another topic to try and discuss now. Does Orange it raise, my, does it raise or lower my blood pressure? <laughs> yeah, we'll find out in a second. <laughs> Marley Anderson's also with us. And I'll come to you first, Marley, because we discussed a few weeks ago about football not being binary, not being black and white, and there being a grey area, a grey area between how much of a challenge is worthy of a red card and how much of it is just a yellow card. And so maybe the IFAB were listening to Football Social Daily because a report or two has surfaced over the last 48 hours suggesting that they're looking at potentially bringing in orange cards and sin bins into football on a trial basis. Joel's already shaken his head, but I'd be keen to hear what you think of this, first of all. I think I like it. I like it because I think, like, in the, the practicalities of it, we shouldn't really... I mean, this should just be a non-starter. We, we shouldn't like it because, in theory, everything can be yellow or red. But now, with the introduction of VAR and slowing things down and making things look worse, there's an awful lot of decisions which are going... um that are falling between yellow and red, in my opinion. Like, you know... The other week with when Bruno Gamares like elbows um Jorginho in the Newcastle Arsenal match, he, like it's violent conduct, but it's it's so insignificant that you'd probably say you'd you'd feel harsh if it was a red card. And like when when play when players go head to head and they push each other, like it's not quite It's not enough to be a red. Okay, well, let's go to a more recent incident then, which was on Monday night with Carlos Vinicius on Maximilian Kilman for Wolves. And he was given a yellow card for pushing his head into Kilman's head. The term that we all use is headbutt. Gary O'Neill was absolutely raging in his post-match press conference saying that the referee's effectively telling me that we're allowed to headbutt people as long as it's soft. You know where where does the orange fall into people's expectations? Because you can give Vinicius an orange, let's just say, for that headbutt on Kilman, and you'll still get people that think it was a red. Yeah, it's it's um it's for the it's for the the loopholes, which there should never be loopholes in rules. That's the whole point of a rule. Um, but I'm thinking for more more things like when you win the ball and then you follow through catches someone, for example, like. The rules don't say whether it's red or not. Like the Chelsea Spurs yeah, no, game. Th- I've got the one in my head of the Curtis Jones one. Um, where yeah, he, very similar. He, he wins like the, it, or like Rash, Rashford in the Champions League yeah, against yeah. Copenhagen where he steps away from the... Exactly, yeah. Very similar. So yeah. the rule is, you know, if you make contact with 
you know, the if you endanger the opponent, it's it's a red card. But the rule is also if you win the ball, you're in possession of the ball. You know, so how you can't tackle someone when you're in possession of the ball, which Rashford was and you know, Curtis Jones would probably argue was as well. So in that in those instances, there is a, a middle ground where, you know, players aren't getting protected for you know, keeping hold of the ball and trying to trying to keep hold of possession of the football, which is is weird, but I think with with this, I'd, I'd be interested to trial it and see how it goes. Um, but again, you can always come down to, you know, under the rules of the game, that is a red card or whatever. You know, you can always say that is a red or that is a yellow if you if you look at it enough. But things like follow throughs, like Romero, you know, he, he ultimately wins the ball, but then he endangers an opponent with with the force and the follow through, and it's it's that like balance of of where this is and where it's going and you know the game's completely different I mean, you sometimes see you know clips of from the 90s and the late 80s of players physically punching each other and number one not not even reacting to each other and number two then getting a yellow card so like the game moves on um and there's there's different things that are going you know coming into the game and stuff but i think if we trialed it then we know whether we like it or not um it you know, they tried VAR, everyone hated it, and they, they did it anyway. So maybe it's another one of those. Well, these measures could allegedly, Joel, be introduced as early as next season. And the orange card would involve a sim bin, a la we see in rugby, where a player will go off for a set period of time before coming back on. Now, during the 2017-18 season, it's reported that sin bins were successfully trialled and then rolled out across 31 leagues. But how do you feel about this? Because we always hear when they're trying to bring in new rules, the same thing happened with VAR. And from a lower league supporters perspective, the same thing happened in the EFL trophy when they said they would trial under 21 teams in the competition for a season. We all know when they say that they're going to trial something, that's basically just them saying, we're bringing this in, by the way. There's nothing you can do about it, but we'll dress it up and wrap it up as a trial so people don't get too annoyed. I mean, you guys talk about that Rashford one, which is a really good example we have some we have a, we have an orange card already and it's a yellow card it's a warning to say don't do that again very true why do we need an orange card to say okay it wasn't quite a yellow because it's a bit too harsh but i don't want to send you off so let's just take you off the pitch for 10 minutes how about interpret the rules correctly how about actually know the laws of the game and not be so flippant with a red card or actually understand what did i mean but even when i talk about it what even is a red card these days it's subjective so an orange card is going to be as subjective as a red. And I can already I can already anticipate now one of the players, let's say it's a defender who has to go off on an orange card for 10 minutes. The manager on the touchline will be timing 10 minutes exactly. If the referee doesn't let him on in exactly 10 minutes and the play is right in front of him, because let's remember, when a player goes off injured, the referee doesn't let him on until the game is away from the actual touchline. So let's say he has to go on after those 10 minutes and the team is suddenly counter-attacking and he's not allowed to be let on. The other team is going to be furious because yeah, they're yeah. not going to be allowed on the pitch. And then they're going to be saying, well, he would have been in that position that they've just scored from. And it's not even an orange card because it should have been a yellow card. So for me, it's just another can of worms that they're going to need to address. 
the referees and the PGMOL will be coming out with statements about how it was an orange rather than a red. And the VAR guys will be deliberating if it was a yellow card or an orange card. I mean, get the flipping, get the traffic lights out. We'll all do it together. It's ridiculous. (laughs) I I don't like it at all. Well, the feeling is that the orange card is there to kind of reduce the amount of tactical fouls. You know, when someone's running through, they've beaten a midfielder Mm. and then the midfielder brings them down. That's up to the referee to manage, though. We already have the system in place. This is yeah. what I don't understand. But but you take you take a warning in that situation, don't you? Like, there's so many situations where you take a yellow to stop a goal, and sometimes when it's so cynical under the laws of the game, it can only be a yellow card. Uh, there's no there's no advantage you get from having a player booked, really, as a as the the victim team type thing. Because the, all the yellow card guy does is stay away from everyone for the rest of the game and usually get sub 10 minutes later. This is what I mean. I understand what you're saying, Marley, but the referee can decide the momentum and the kind of discipline of the game early on. If there's a cynical foul in the first minute and he gives a yellow card, it almost dictates how the game's going to go, where he's almost no nonsense. It kind of comes from the referee's personality in a sense, where in Europe, they're very no-nonsense, very disciplinarian. Whereas in the Premier League, they kind of like to give chances, give chances, and then they'll start giving yellow cards. Well, what about orange cards for then abusing the referee and swearing at the referee and not showing the referee enough respect? Because I think some players are willing to take yellow card for calling the ref a bellend. Did uh, Lewis Dunk not get sent off for calling the referee something this weekend? Lewis Dunk got sent off, yeah. You know, if you know that you're going to get an orange in 10 to 12 minutes on the sideline by saying something inflammatory to a referee, it might increase the respect levels in the game. Who knows? I don't know. I feel like it's changed a little bit this season where I'm seeing a lot of players more back off now because the referees have been pretty going into their pocket almost to say, if you keep carrying on, you will get a yellow. Kicking the ball away. uh, Marley, do you remember the Newcastle game where Havertz got fouled? And then uh, three Newcastle players got a yellow card following it for literally demonstrating to the referee. That's why no, I'm Havitz, feeling... Havertz did the foul and got a yellow card, but then our, we had four, I think it's four lads got Yeah, for arguing with the referee. For, for, for so, arguing, yeah. Gordon, Shah, Lascelles. Yeah, so it's already else, yeah. in place. That That's why I don't feel like you need an orange card because then you, how are you going to differentiate between a yellow to an orange to a red? Right, so Marley likes the idea. You're not so sure. And I'll be honest, I'm somewhere in the middle. Because the sticking point for me is, why are we thinking about orange cards and sin bins when we can't even get the rules right in the game as it is right now? Let's sort out VAR first. Let's tighten up on officiating. The last thing these referees need, who can't do their job properly at the moment as it is anyway, and that includes VAR, is extra rules. Yeah. to try and get their heads around three new tiers of discipline it's madness it's too complicated you've got to you've got to learn to walk before you can run you know it's that, it's that saying in it but let me let me just raise one extra point which is i've said i've said I, I quite like the idea however it will not work under the current rules if it comes in because what the simple thing that will happen is as soon as a player gets a, a yellow card and the timer, uh, sorry, an orange card and the timer starts ticking down and they get 10 minutes on the sideline, the level of time wasting in that 10, 10 minutes will be insane. Your goalie will go down with a calf strain. That'll be three minutes. The physio comes on. You know, the player can't go off the field and get treatment because he's the goalkeeper. So that'll take two minutes. So then Lado on the, on the sides down to eight minutes. The, the, the um, clock has to stop. In football, the ball in play time has to be the has to be the 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 timer of the game 
because under this, you know, under this thing, see if you've got, you know, Harry Maguire off the pitch or whatever. That's probably a terrible example because there might be might be better with him off the pitch, Man United. But if it was Harry Maguire and he's a centre back and you're defending with a three at the back, you know, and it's 60, 60 odd minutes to seventy minutes that he's off for, and you're two one up. What happens? You're just going to be like, oh, you know, sorry, we've got injuries and the ball's going to take longer to come back in. And all of a sudden, you're 10 minutes under the current laws of the game where the clock doesn't stop. The 10 minutes will end up getting served, probably four minutes of match time that you've missed. So under under these laws, it, it just Can you imagine a work. Diego Simeone side with a yellow, an orange card? Oh, <laughs> I'll pay to see triggered that. me. That's triggered me. I can. Oh, I hate watching. Diego I hate watching Atletico in a knockout game. <laughs> he oh, would run awful. on the pitch just to delay the time or trip someone up like Jose Mourinho <sighs> did to Ali Mers in that soccer aid. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, yeah, it says that the orange card has already been trialled in grassroots football. I can't imagine you've got it in your Sunday league, do you, Marley? We do indeed. You have sin bins. Marley has a permanent orange card. So you have experience of it. Is that why you like it? Because you're used to it. I've only seen it once or twice and it's the same kid on my team who keeps getting it because he keeps calling the referees that angry names. Uh, that's what you get it for. You don't get it for fouls in um, in Sunday League. You get it for uh, abuse of the officials um, and you have 10 minutes off and that's that's how it works. Okay, well, what's your take on orange cards and sin bins? Do you think it will work? Or let us know your thoughts on the situation, whether you're a fan of Simbins and Orange Cards by getting in touch with us on social media. The links to all of our channels are in the description to this podcast and you can click the link to join the Telegram group as well to continue the discussion after the podcast is done. Next, though, on FSD, we are going to tackle some of your questions that you've sent in to us via those social media channels and the Telegram group. So we'll get to those next after this. Final part of today's podcast. This is the award-winning Premier League show, Football Social Daily. Thanks for joining us. I'm Niall. Marley and Joel are here with me. And we're going to take on some of your questions. One of them is about Aston Villa. It comes from Mike in Perth, who's an Aston Villa fan. And he's probably rubbing his hands together at the moment with how well Aston Villa are doing, Joel. They've got some big games coming up between now and Christmas, I think including Arsenal and Manchester City. Right now, they're two points off top spot. If they continue the form that they've been in, they've just come off the back of beating Tottenham. Could we see Aston Villa be top of the Premier League table by Christmas? It's insane to even think that, isn't it? They've almost taken Spurs' spot as the new flavour of the month. We're probably going to see Unai Emery with about three Manager of the Month awards in the next three months. Uh, everyone's moved on from Big Ange. But yeah, I, I actually had the pleasure of speaking with Mike on his podcast not long ago, uh, talking about... My history in football, basically, and why I'm a United fan. And I know he's a massive Villa fan. And I actually said, I think we spoke in October, and I've always maintained this. When you've got a striker like Ollie Watkins, who is at the same level, I don't want to say at the same level as Haaland, but in terms of the scoring rate at the same level, you've always got a chance of being up there, regardless of how your team is. And the fact that they're now in the position they are in, with no real injury concerns going into the next few games... As long as Louise doesn't end up getting a transfer in January, which I think would be a massive miss for them, and I don't believe he will go, they've got a massive chance. I mean, when you look at their home form, undefeated this season at Villa Park, yeah. that is commendable. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely incredible. I don't think it's undefeated. Is it 100%? It might even be they've won of their games at home. Even, God, even better then. 
Um, I think they've got every chance, especially since, you know, the games that have got coming up. I know they're the two best teams in the league, probably uh, alongside Liverpool, you would say, this season. Mm. But you've got to commend them. Unai Emery, I've always said, after his stint at Arsenal and the way he got dragged through that and the way he's now come up on top and basically had the last laugh, I would love it if Aston Villa... Not got top four because that will take another top four spot. Settle but, down, Kevin Keegan. <laughs> but I, I, I honestly, I feel like they need to just go for everything this season. It's yeah. a real feel-good factor around Villa. And I feel like they've earned it from the last few years. Those two games against City and Arsenal are both at home, as Joel says, Marley. City are on Wednesday the 6th of December, Arsenal on Saturday the 9th. I say could Aston Villa be top by Christmas? They could be top even before then. First of all, though, they've got to travel to Bournemouth on Sunday. They've got a game tonight, actually, in the Europa Conference League against Legia Warsaw from Poland. So not easy when you're playing Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday. And in fact, it'll be Thursday, Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday for Villa in the next four games. And two of those games will be City and Arsenal. But do you think that they really could upset the title race this season and actually get a result against Manchester City and Arsenal at Villa Park? Because the games we've seen Aston Villa play against Liverpool and Newcastle, they came out second best. Yes, they've just beaten Spurs and maybe that's a new marker that they've thrown down. But in the early stages of the season, when they did come up against a side like Liverpool, for example, they were beaten. Um, I don't think they've got enough to finish, to sort of be in the race, Um, in my opinion. I, I just don't think, I think they're a very good team. Um, but I don't think they're going to be in the in the title race come you know March, February, March, April onwards sort of thing. I think they'll absolutely walk that Conference League though. I don't think there's a team close to them in terms of uh, ability in that in that um, competition. Um, but I think yeah, I mean yeah, they beat Spurs, but it's the worst version of Spurs you'll see this season. All the injuries, all the you know. Two fullbacks playing centre back, you know, no Madison, etc., etc. Um, and then I think the the schedule. I mean, if you're going to play Arsenal and Man City, you know, you don't want them three days apart for God's sake. I, that's that's been a bit rough to them, but that's what you got to do. Um, so yeah, I think I think they'll come out second best to them teams, but still, that doesn't exactly, you know, stop them having a good season. It's not as if it's win or bust for, for Aston Villa. Uh, you know, two years ago, they're sitting there with Steven Gerrard in the dugout. And before that, you know, Dean Smith and before that, Steve Bruce. So you can't ask any Aston Villa fan, are you disappointed with the season if you finish sixth or fifth, you know, which is entirely in their in their um, capabilities. So let's just see where it goes. There's no pressure on them as well. That's, that's big for them. The Conference League is... Not, I wouldn't even say it's a distraction because it's it's not a distraction until you really can smell the win of the competition, the semi-finals, the final. They're not. They're gonna cruise to that. Really, there's no team in there. I don't think that can that can touch them. But we'll have to wait and see because it's they're all learning. And if their asses go at, at, at Christmas and they think, you know, and it depends how they mentally react to it. But they've got one of the best managers in the league. Um, you know, we always say we we all hate how he was bombed out of Arsenal and the fan base, which is questionable at, at, at the best of times. The Arsenal fan base they just turned on him because he couldn't speak good English, and that was 
that was weird in itself because they had a top manager there and, you know, they could have got to where they are now a few years ago if they'd have kept him. But, you know, the the tide turned against him too uh, too quickly, in my opinion. Well, Aston Villa are doing absolutely brilliantly at the moment. I personally can't see them finishing in the top four. But as you say, Marley, if they finish sixth or seventh or even fifth, that would be an incredible season for them. And what a job Unai Emery is doing. Let's take a look at the other end of the table now, because if we've been asked a question about Aston Villa, I wonder what people's take is on Everton, who of course have had 10 points taken off them for breaching the Premier League's profit and sustainability rules. Everton haven't appealed that yet, but we're expecting them to do so. So at the moment, they are on four points. They are second bottom and in the relegation zone. They lost 3-0 to Manchester United in their last game. But I just wonder whether if we think Villa might be in with a shout of being top by Christmas, do we think that Everton could be out of the relegation zone by Christmas Day, Joel? I'm just looking at their fixtures. They've got Nottingham Forest at the weekend before a midweek game at home to Newcastle. Then it's Chelsea, Burnley, Fulham, Spurs. And then on the 27th, so just two days after Christmas, they've got Manchester City. So if we look at these next six, Forest, Newcastle, Chelsea, Burnley, Fulham and Spurs. There's some good games in there in terms of winnable ones, but there's also some really tricky ones. Yeah, I was really disappointed with them um, when Manchester United played them. I know that that Garnacho goal pretty much punched the wind out of their sails after they tried to build up a pretty ferocious atmosphere and it kind of went dead from that point onwards. But they've got to chase the mighty Luton at the moment. They're the ones to they're the ones to catch us now sits there grinning like a Cheshire cat. But you would think prior to that 10-point deduction, they were on 14 points. They looked in really good form. There's no doubt about it that that deduction will have had a ripple effect in the squad in terms of the outlook psychologically. Now they're looking up even more so than they were before. But I think by Christmas time, especially when you look at the teams around them, I mean, Burnley and Sheffield United, quite crazy how Vincent Company came out and said that he thought it was going to be a bit harder than it has been. I mean, how much harder does he want it to have one win in 13 games? It's quite an incredible quote that he's come out with, but I think Everton definitely do have it in them, but Goodison Park needs to be on their side for the next few games because like we all mentioned, it was quite disappointed how they all started to leave just before the game had finished. Um, You know, to protest is about protesting for the cause, not for the game, and that's it. But I think they have enough to eventually get up there and it's a real plus that Carver-Lewin's now touch wood in decent injury-free form, which is a massive, massive plus for them. I think Everton will stay up as well. And actually just mentioning that game against Fulham that I referenced in that six-game run is actually an EFL Cup quarter-final. So the five games before Christmas, Forest, Newcastle, Chelsea, Burnley and Tottenham Hotspur. And it is the game this weekend against Forest and the game in two and a half weeks against Burnley, Marley. They're the ones that Everton should be targeting. And actually, they should be targeting every game with the situation that they're in, trying to get out of the relegation zone. For me, those are the ones that they just have to win, don't they? Yep. Um, if you're looking at when you get that points deduction and you only need you know a few to drag yourself back out of there, you look at the games around them, you don't want to be plunged into a, a bad run of games type of thing. And, you know, Forest, Forest are never unbeatable. Even Forest at their own ground, yeah, they're pretty good, but they don't travel very well. Um, and they're not a team you would look at and say, God, we, we're going to have to play well to beat them. They'll always give you chances to win the game. Um, and Everton have just got to take them. I don't think Everton score enough goals to um, to sort of have chances against every team. But they're getting better and they were in a good run before this points deduction come. Um, so, you know, you look at that and you think, 
Nottingham Forest, um, and then Burnley. You know that that Burnley game would be would be huge. The Sean Dyche derby um, will be will be interesting. So I think you know with the way the the team is uh, the league is sorry that you know you you just hope you play one of those teams down there and get the points. But it's easier said than done. But you know if you're gonna have a task in front of you, you you want teams around you that it almost becomes an early season six pointer. All right. Well, thanks for your questions, guys. Don't forget, you can send more of them to us via our social media channels. Links to those in the description and the Telegram group. That's the place to be. If there's anything at all you want us to discuss, link to that is in the description. But that is it for another episode of Football Social Daily and indeed another week of the podcast. If you hit subscribe or follow, that way you won't miss another episode of the podcast again. It will be dropped right into your feed and you might even get a notification when it is ready to listen to. But from us, that's it. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you on Monday on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.